Blog Talk Radio. Another edition of Suspense Radio. I am your host, John Robb, and this is August two, or August 26, 2017. So, so glad to have you join us, however, wherever, and whenever you listen to the show. We want to thank you. Of course, you can get all of our shows on demand. Just go to iTunes, hit Suspense Radio, you'll see us, click it, say subscribe, you're all there. Today's show, we have an outstanding cast here. We're back after a little bit of a break. Uh, we take, uh, you know, about six weeks off. We're coming up here with first with Mega author John Connolly is going to be talking about his latest book called He, which will be out um, in a couple weeks here in Europe, but a couple months later will be out in the United States. And then, of course, we're going to just Charlie Parker and some other things with him, too. Then we're going to have Jonathan Putnam, C.E. Tobisman, and J.L. Duchette will be on the show, so two great hours. Of course, all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books. Please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on all of their works. And our latest magazine will be out, um, what is today, 26th, five days. So August 31st, make sure you check that out. If you don't get the magazine, just email editor at suspensemagazine.com, and we'll send you out to copies so you can check us out and see what you think. So without any further ado, let's get right into our first guest. Again, he is the best-selling author of the Charlie Parker series. Um, and that latest book came out in July called A Game of Ghosts, but he is on to also talk about his latest novel, which comes out in Ireland in about a week, called He. So, Mr. John Connolly, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a long time, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure to be talking to you again. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's always great to be able to talk with you. We always have such wonderful conversations, and it's always interesting because, you know, besides Charlie Parker and some of the other things, you, you always like to surprise us here, and you've done it with this latest novel called He, which um, comes out in Europe, what, in a week, I believe, right? Yeah, actually, coming out this week. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's on the shelves in Ireland already. And, and, of course, United States will be a couple months later than that, but um, that's, you know, we always kind of get things a little bit later, but it's not too far away, so people can check that out. But let everybody know exactly what you have going on in He. Well, He is, uh, is quite a departure. He is a book about Stan Laurel, as in Laurel and Hardy. Um, uh-huh. And it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a very loosely fictionalized biography, I suppose. Um, I, he's, been, he's somebody that I was always very interested in. I'm from that generation that um, mm-hmm. grew up with them on television. You know, they would be part of the schedules. And... Um, and um, and I suppose I, I remember many years ago I was staying with Shelley MacArthur, who was the used to manage the mysterious bookstore in Los Angeles, on my first book tour for for Every Dead Thing, and we got talking, and um, it turned out Shelley had met Stan Laurel uh, when he was oh. a boy because Stan Laurel lived in Santa Monica and he he kept his name in the Santa Monica telephone directory, 
And if you wanted to go and meet him, you could just call and say, hi, can, would it be okay if I dropped around? And you could go and meet Stan Laurel, and he would make you a cup of English tea. And, you, you know, he would sign a picture for you. And, uh, and if he liked you very much, he would give you a cheap Derby hat as a souvenir, <laughs> uh, which I thought was quite lovely. I think he was just grateful. You know, he just didn't want to be forgotten. And um, sure. and I suppose I, I had always thought of him as a kind of black and white figure, you know, because that was those were the films I watched. And it's hard to think of him as somebody who would have seen the, the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, who saw the rise of the Beatles. He seemed to belong to another time. And, you know, Oliver Hardy, who was his partner, um, predeceased him by eight years. And he never worked again. He refused to work after Oliver Hardy died. He wouldn't do interviews. He wouldn't do TV. Uh, he wouldn't write scripts for, for even though he was offered commissions and he needed the money, he wouldn't write. He couldn't work without this man. And and I think he was bereaved in the way, same way that a partner in a marriage is bereaved when one one or the other dies. Um, he was the one left behind, and I always wondered what it was like for him. And I suppose he is an exploration of that, is an exploration of memory. So so quite different on one level. And yet, on the other hand, you know, I've often, the Parker novels touch upon male friendship. They touch upon grief and loss um, and the overcoming of those things. So in one way, it's a departure. In another way, it isn't. And I've been working on it for the best part of, I mean, thinking about it for 20 years and seriously working on it for about a decade. So what looks like a departure from outside, for me, is just something that was going on almost in parallel to the Parker novels and the other books I've been writing over the last few years. Yeah, you know, I grew up, of course, watching, I mean, they were, they were, it was more kind of reruns when I would see, but we would go to like our local, I remember it was called Shakey's, it was our local pizza establishment, and they used to have a big screen on the wall, black and white, and they would show Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, and you kind of fell in love with, with, with the duo, and it is kind of like a generation ago where now, like, my kids have no idea who Laurel and Hardy is. It's more like a footnote. Like, people might say Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy, and they're like, oh, I might have heard the name, but what did they kind of do? And, you know, I think it's wonderful to be able to bring a book out like this. And I love the hat on the cover. I mean, that's just perfect, of course, who, who he would have been. And when you're researching a book like this, though, because it was kind of like an, an off time and now you're kind of bringing this forward, how difficult was it? You said 10 years, but, you know, what was a lot of some of the difficulties that you had also writing? Well, one of the, the, the because they, they spanned really the, the birth and the birth of Hollywood up until the, the 1950s when they stopped working, you're dealing with a huge time scale. And a lot of very interesting figures passed through their lives. You know, Stan Laurel knew Buster Keaton. Uh, he, he had understudied Chaplin and he used to share rooms with Charlie Chaplin. And they stayed friends for a very, very long time. Um, and so, so one of the problems is there's just so much interesting material. And when you're researching, and this is true of, of any novel, it's as true of the Parker novels or as, as it is of the Chaplin books, I've learned over the years that you can't fall too in love with your research. Um, it's possibly a flaw, certainly an every dead thing. When I was writing my first book, I think I think I was reluctant to throw away anything that I found interesting. Um, and so with, with Stan Laurel, I had to be very disciplined. And think well if I'm. It had to be things that were relevant to his life. And the other thing is, when you're writing about a person who existed, and you know everybody in the book is a is someone who you know who existed. All I really make up in the book is, is some of the dialogue. You have a duty and a responsibility towards them. It's not like making up a fictional character, you know, where you can really do right. anything you want as long as you stay true to the character. Um, 
with 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 somebody like Stan Laurel, you have a kind of obligation to be correct to to try and find the truth of them. Um, and that's that's a kind of responsibility. And and I think that's why it took me so long to write to write the book. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and. Uh, and I, it was interesting. I was doing a media interview in Ireland last week, um, and one of the things we do here is we, when you're when you're in school, uh, we have a kind of break year between third and your fourth year in school. Is, is a, you do a couple of subjects, but you can go and study judo or you can go and study drama. It's a kind of chance for you to take a breath and decide what you want to do. And you do a, a, a week's work placement, and you know some people go into newspapers and some people go into radio or whatever it might be. And the journalist had a kid in who was doing work placement. And he sort of handed he the book to this kid and said, I'm going to be interviewing this guy tomorrow. Have a look through this and think of what question you would ask him. And the kid came back and said, the question I would ask him is, what would Stan Laurel think of this book? And it was a really, and I mean, that's a clever kid. It was a really, really interesting question. And I, it's, it's kind of stayed with me. And I think it cuts to the heart when you're writing about somebody for whom you have a lot of affection and a lot of admiration, but at the same time was quite a flawed individual. You know, he married five times. He had a long-standing mistress. Um, you know, he had difficulties with women. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I, I suppose he was quite a private man in some ways. He probably wouldn't want somebody discussing his affairs you know, his failings in his marriage. Um, and yet, you know, they were so much a part of him and so much a part of what he was. Uh, so it was, it was a question that stayed with me. And I think, it, as I said, it kind of cuts to the heart when you're writing a book about a person who, who has existed, who was real, who until quite recently had a daughter in the world because his daughter, Lois, uh, I think only died last month or early this month. You know, there are people who, who mm-hmm. remembered him. And so you have to be very careful. You know, but but the one thing I think also is, you know, you've kind of immortalized him by writing the book because now the book is out there forever and people can, you know, generations later can start to see and read and understand, you know, who he was, the good with the bad. Everybody has a dark side. Everybody has a light side. I mean, that's just the way it is. And, you know, you, that's just who you are as a person. And yeah, that's, really... that's, absolute, that's absolutely true. And, and I, think, yeah. I think he's a person that, as you say, you know, like I said, we were talking that we're of a similar generation. We can recall seeing them on a screen. There, he's a person that maybe people don't know a great deal about his life and don't know how odd it was and don't know how difficult it was at times. Um, but, you know, we, we were talking earlier about the kids maybe not being exposed in the same way. And yet, you know, if you look at uh, something like Monsters, Inc., you know, yeah. Sully and Micah Monsters, Inc. are a kind of version of Laurel and Hardy. You know, kind of. kids, will, kids will almost instinctively understand. If you show them a Laurel and Hardy short, they'll go, yeah, I get that. I've seen versions of that before. It's just that these were the, the kind of progenitors of it. These were the first great, they were the first great double act on the screen, you know, and everything that came after owes them a debt. And, you know, your, your, your fans are going to see this book and they're going to say, wow, this is kind of a departure from what you normally write. But how gratifying was it for you to kind of finish it? Because as an author, you really stepped out of your boundary here and from, you know, your Charlie Parker and, and some of your other books uh, you know, fiction books that you write, it had to be very fulfilling for you as an author. It, to it was, but this. it's also, you know, on one level, it, 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 it's very interesting when you're writing a series, particularly if you're writing a series in, in mystery fiction, because readers are very, very loyal. 
but they tend to be loyal to characters rather than writers. So, you know... Yes, um, they are. That's true. That is so true. Yeah, and, and they get a bit annoyed when you go off and do other things. And, and a writer in, in genre fiction can make a very good living just producing versions of the same book year after year after year. And, and readers will be very tolerant and very forgiving. You know, we tend to forgive a bad book in a series. It doesn't make us want to stop reading the series. You know, we think, okay, that wasn't a great one, but the next one will be better. You know, readers are kind of eternal optimists in that way. Um, but it's the kiss of death for a writer because you will find that I, I go to the gym occasionally. Well, I go to the gym a couple of days a week because I'm a middle-aged man. And, you know, if I don't, I'm going to have to start wearing male spanks or stays or yeah, something just to keep my belly in. Um, and, you know, if you exercise the same muscle day after day after day, it begins to get sore and the other muscles atrophy. You know, you need to alternate it. And, and writing is a bit like that. It's it's very important to go off and, and experiment. And it's very important to risk failure. It's very important to try something new. And for me, you know, almost every second book now tends to be outside the series. Um, but when I come back to the series, I come back having learned something new, feeling reinvigorated for it. And I think those experiments inform the Parker novels as well. They make the Parker novels better. Um, and yes, yeah, so I know there will, there will be readers. I was when I was in a bookstore signing he this week. You know, it's just I happened to be dropping by to say hello, and a man came in and he said uh, he said I hear John Connolly has got a new book out. And the woman behind the counter said, "Well, actually, he's over there signing them." And the guy looked at the books and he said, it's a "Charlie Parker book," and he just walked out. You know, and I thought, <laughs> "Well, they're my people. I'm so touched." You know, um, but he's he's perfectly within his rights to do that. Um, mm-hmm. He'll come back when the Parker novel comes out, but he probably probably won't. Under understand is just how much the next Parker book will have been influenced by he and by what I learned from writing it. Yeah, that that is funny what you said, of course. I mean, an author passes away and they're like, oh my God, that's sad, but now we're not going to get another book from him on this series. And it's like, that's what they're more disappointed about, which I think is why you see the rise of these authors that have passed away, but their series are continuing by other authors because the fans just don't care really almost who writes them as long as no, it no, has, no. And that goes back you know, to Jack Ryan like on the cover or Mitch Rapp on the cover. They're like, I don't care. I just want that character. They want to fix the character. I think that goes back to, was it, um, I think it was Virginia Andrews was one of the first of those. I think if people remember reading Flowers in the Attic. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, she, died, she died, and then those books have still been coming out for, for decades, you know? Yeah, You're right, people, people just want to, they want to spend time with the character. Um, and I think sometimes that's, there's a misunderstanding when, when people who don't read mystery fiction a lot begin talking about it, and they say, well, it, it, you know, mystery fiction, that's just all about plot. And actually, most mystery readers will know that the plots don't change very much. You know, there's a murder, there's an investigation, there's a solution of some kind. You know, it's a variation on a couple of very slender themes. Why you keep coming back is for character. And all good fiction is about character. It doesn't the genre is irrelevant. All fiction, all good fiction should be about character. And on some deep level, I think mystery readers understand that. Their affection is tied up with the character. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a warm blanket when they know when they pick up a Charlie a Charlie Parker novel like the one that had just come out here in the United States in July, which is a game of ghosts. They're like, I know what I'm going to get. So when I lay my twenty four dollars down or fifteen for the Kindle or whatever it is, I know what I'm going to get, and that makes me feel comfortable. And they're yeah, more, exactly more apt that, to do that's, that. That's the pleasure. That's the pleasure. Yeah. Right? So they throw it's, fifteen it's bucks down on something else that they might not know. 
Yeah, it's they. They've got, but readers kind of want the same thing, but but slightly different. You know, they want right. they don't want to read exactly the same novel, but they know that there's going to be a certain rhythm to it. They know that they're going to be supporting characters who come in whose whose company they enjoy, and and people get very possessive because you know I have two characters oh, yeah. called Angel and Louie in my books. The number of readers who come up to me and go, "Don't let anything happen to them," you know, if if one of them were to die, I would be really annoyed, and you kind of think. Mm-hmm. Steady on, you know, we're getting into misery territory here. I was um, just going to say, know, misery creeps into your head. <laughs> it does. The first thing, I'm going to end up with a basement with, you know, with my legs broken if I, if I hurt yeah, these characters. You're like, shit, <laughs> I ain't going to Colorado in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is quite, because people have this deep seas affection. And in one way, uh-huh. it's, it's very flattering for a writer when, when a reader comes up to you and has, has taken such possession of a character and feels such a sense of ownership um, that they can say that to you. Like I said, it's mildly terrifying at the same time. And you kind of back away slightly but still you know very nice it is well you know let's just jump into the book here game of ghosts because like you said the next one and now this is the 14th in the in the parker series so i mean this is now we're we're, we're into massive um you know series now 14 novels when you look back at the first and look at the and look at the latest you're like jesus charlie has really come a long way but like you said the next book in the series was going to be a little influenced by what you just figured out and he so a game of ghosts where did this kind of come from? Where did, where did you kind of grab this idea from? Well, I had spent uh, a year finishing off a collection of short stories called Night Music, and, and they were ghost stories. And, you know, each book tends to be a reaction to the one that went before it, but is often informed by it. And I suppose having spent a year immersed in ghost stories, it seemed quite natural in one way that the Parker novel would be a kind of ghost story. Um, and it's an experiment as well, because I wanted to see if you could write a mystery novel in which the detective was always one step behind the game, where the reader was always ahead of the detective. And actually, in one way, you could take Parker out of the novel and he wouldn't have influenced the conclusion particularly in any way. This is he, He's almost like a, he's kind of a witness to what happens. Um, and he's always chasing it. And at the end of it, the reader knows more, will still know more at the end of the book than Parker ever did. The reader understands things that Parker just has no idea of. Um, so you're always, you know, every time I come to a book, I try to think, well, what can I do that I haven't done before? And is there a way of giving readers an experience that they haven't had before? And, and so Game of Ghosts is very much like that. Um, you know, on one level, what happens in the book can be explained in purely um, rational terms. You know, uh, on the other hand, there's an underlying theme to it, which suggests actually these people believe in ghosts. The people who are committing these killings believe in ghosts. They believe in the afterlife. And, and what they're doing is, is intimately linked to that. Um, but I like the idea that a reader can read the book on one of two levels. Or you can read it on both levels if you want to. Uh, I, you know, I never wanted to write a mystery novel. I remember talking to David Simon once, um, the, the guy who, who, the creator of The Wire, uh, because we, I, I know Laura Lippman, who is obviously his, his missus. And, uh, and David had said, you know, if someone had explained my books to him, he wouldn't have wanted to read them. You know, if someone had said to these are supernatural <laughs> mysteries, he would have gone, well, I don't read supernatural mysteries. Uh, because I think, you know, he, maybe he thought it was something in which, you know, the ghost did it. You know, it's like versions of Topper. And instead, right. you know, the, 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 the books aren't like that. Instead, the books are kind of odd metaphysical thrillers that suggest actually that there may be an afterlife, that what happens in this world influences what happens in the next world and vice versa. And, and, um, and you know, it was one of the things when I began writing that I, I felt I was being criticized for slightly because 
when I began writing about 20 years ago, it still seemed that mystery readers were, were quite purist in a way. You know, they were very much uh, enthralled to a kind of rationalist view of the genre, which came out of Sherlock Holmes and uh, right. you know, Poirot using the little grey cells to solve a crime. The belief that the, in rationalism, the belief that the world could be understood through a process of, of reasoning and logic. Um, and actually, the world is much stranger than that. And people are much stranger than that. People are not logical. People behave for all kinds of odd reasons. People are emotional. People do things that hurt themselves and hurt the people around them. You know, people are selfish. People are angry. People are fearful. Um, and the universe itself is much stranger. You know, the more we find out about the workings of the universe, the odder it appears. And maybe perhaps for me, coming from a Catholic background as well, you know, Catholics aren't good with rationalism. You know, you can't you can't have a have a belief in a deity and be entirely rationalistic. So, right. um, so, so you know, I I I didn't see um, a difficulty in including anti-rational elements in the books that I was writing, but at the time it was odd. I, I think one of the things I find fascinating about the genre is how much it's changed over the last certainly the last decade at least. Um, you know, there are you can see influences of science fiction coming into it. Much more influence of of, of, of people, supernatural fiction. People, I think a generation of, of re, re, sorry, a generation of writers came up who had maybe read graphic fiction, who had absorbed all kinds of genres, and were, weren't as weren't as pedantic about about the genre. Who felt that actually it's okay if you want to have. You know, there's a wonderful series about the, uh, the 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 final policeman on Earth as the world is coming to an end, and I can't remember who's writing it, but it's a really brilliant series. But you know, it has elements of of, of science fiction to it. Um, and so I think now there's a, we're much more willing to accept a, a kind of broader base for the genre. And I think that's very, very good. You know, the, there are people who I think wanted the genre to exist somewhere between the birth of Sherlock Holmes and the death of Poirot, you know, and that everything had to fall right. into that particular model. Um, and I think there's just so much more potential in the genre than that. Yeah, I mean, that was well put. I mean, exactly. I, you know, I mean, I'm a huge Poirot fan, and, and I can see those kinds of things. And so... What I love also is that when, when you know when you're thinking of these things and you're putting them down on paper, you you remind yourself about like you said the past and the going forward and how and how things are constructed, but it's also in a very unique way because Charlie Parker is a very unique character. I mean he's kind of one of his own that you've kind of written here, and when people read him, you can kind of see that there's really no one really truly like him in those in those kind of series. And and I have to think that with 14 books, it gets a little tougher every time to kind of keep that uniqueness about them and keep the series this kind of fresh all the time. Well, it's very, that's very kind of you to say. Um, I think I made two decisions quite early on. Uh, the first was that Parker would get older. You know, he wouldn't – I always look back, go back to Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels, which I really did love – but, you know, right. he never really let Spencer age. Spencer kind nope. of stayed in a kind of nebulous area. He kind of so it was like a cartoon. Aging, he just stayed the same 50s. age over and over. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And so the books, yeah. Well, yeah, we were talking earlier about the pleasure of picking up, the pleasure of the familiar when we pick up the books. And that was the pleasure yeah. of Robert P. Parker's Spencer books. You knew exactly what you were getting. And it was never yeah. really going to change. Um, so, I, so I'd let Parker get older. And the other thing was, was when I was talking earlier again about the idea of being influenced by genres outside the mystery genre, it's, it seemed to me that we, mystery writers were often quite fearful of 
of having a continuing story or, or an overarching story. Uh, it was the idea that each each book would be a discrete episode. So if you know book number one wasn't in the store, people could still read number six or number seven. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you could write a series where, yes, you can pick up any book in the series at any point and you should be able to enjoy it. But if you read them in order, you find that you're getting pieces of a larger puzzle uh, and they're being handed to you. And, and there is an assumption of intelligence on your part. And there's an assumption that you can remember things. You know, um, yeah. it, it, fantasy readers will, will spend, you know, 10 or 20 years reading a series of novels, you know, with quite intricate character schemes and intricate plots. And part of the pleasure is following those plots. I mean, Game of Thrones is the obvious example. You know, by the time, the great thing about having the TV series is that now all of us can remember who these characters are by the time the next book comes out because we would have forgotten right. otherwise. Um, and I thought, why, why couldn't we do that with a mystery novel? Why couldn't it be a sequence rather than a series? Why couldn't uh -huh. you have sure. references in book 14 to something that happened in book one? And suddenly that little reference in book one would start making a different kind of sense. So... I hope that's helped to keep the novels fresh. And it certainly has helped to keep me enthusiastic about writing them. You know, I still enjoy writing them. Um, I don't feel that I'm just tossing them out there to pay the mortgage or because there's a contractual obligation. Um, I'm doing them because I'm curious to see where they might go next. Now, we're, we're running down of time, but there's a couple things I want to get to real quick. And um, my wife will kill me if I don't ask you this question here in the air, but... She needs to know when the next Samuel Johnson's book is coming out. <laughs> Samuel Johnson, yeah, I wrote that lovely. I liked. It. I, I I really enjoyed writing them. They were a, a series about a boy who discovers his neighbors are trying to open the gates of hell, and and the books developed yes. from there. I wrote three of them, and I had ideas for more. Um, there is. I mean, we were talking misery with... early earlier. Yeah. She might come to Ireland. <laughs> yeah, with the, there's so many options with it, right? and they but they were really difficult. They're difficult books to write. Um, you know, I wanted them to be funny. Um, they're filled with little bits of scientific and historical detail. Um, I, I, I wanted the kind of books that would have amused me as a kid. And so um, I do have ideas. I, I think I just got sidetracked with writing, uh, with writing He, with writing sure. the ghost stories. But I'd like to go back to them. And there is an option with DreamWorks. And I think if DreamWorks were to go ahead with, with, with that series, it would give the books a new impetus, I think, as well. They, they struggled a little bit to find their readership, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I can I, see. I, I, yeah, doing but, them, but I mean, but, they grabbed hold in my household, I'll tell you that right now. Oh, well, that's really good uh, to know. I'm yeah. very flattered, like I, very touched. Know, Thank you. We, we just had our first granddaughter back in May, and my wife says, okay, the first three books I'm going to read to her in a series is going to be these when she's old enough. That's what I'm going to start your, with. Your wife sounds like a woman of taste and discernment. <laughs> I'll let her know that. <laughs> and now the other thing that I got to, you know, real quick is I need to have you on because we have to talk about music. I mean, you have a radio show that you do, and it's from, you know, the music that I'm enthralled with, too. The 77 through 89, I mean, I still listen to that every day and whatnot. So we got to bring you on, and we could talk hours just about music and stuff like that, but I think that that's great. And people can listen to it online, too, can't they? Yes, it's called ABC to XTC, and, and if they go to uh, the RTE website, there's a little thing that allows you to listen back to a month's worth of shows. So if you feel that you don't have enough Duran Duran, the beat, and aha in your life, that's the place to go to. Exactly. That's a view to a kill. So, John, we want to thank you always for coming on. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. We can't, we can't wait so long. I think it's been a couple of years since we've talked to you, so we can't wait that long next time to, to have you on. Um, so thank you again so much for coming oh, on. It's always a pleasure, and you be good. You too, sir. Bye-bye.
All right, bye-bye. So again, everybody, that is author John Connolly, and the latest book is called He, and it is about Stan Laurel. So if you know about Laurel and Hardy, you should pick this up. But if you don't know about Laurel and Hardy, then you should pick this up to, to get a little taste of that. And that will be out in the United States here in a couple months, so you want to check that out. But for Charlie Parker fans, if you didn't know, A Game of Ghosts is out now, and that is the latest book in that series, and that is available. It came out in July, so that's available wherever you buy books. But put that on your radar, that book, He, here in the United States. If you're listening to it in Europe, you can already go get it, so stop wasting your time and, and go grab it. And make sure you visit johnconnellybooks.com for all the information about John and all of his works and everything else. We are going to take a quick little break, and then we'll be back here in a couple minutes with our next guest, uh, Jonathan Putnam, and he is going to talk about his book, Perish from the Earth. I think you're going to find this extremely fascinating, what he wrote about. So in the meantime, take a little quick listen to this, and we'll be right back. Won't you smile a little We do have a couple shows that have been on Beyond the Cover and the Story Blender have been doing some shows, so you might want to check those out. Of course, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and get all of the shows right when they're done or listen to us live here um, if you'd like to. So let's jump in here to our next guest. This is um, His name is Jonathan Putnam. He, this is the second book in a series called The Lincoln Speed Series, and the latest book is called Perish from the Earth, and it follows... Um, the first book, which was called These Honored Dead. And it's a little unique kind of spin that Jonathan has kind of put on uh, this. Now, when you hear the word Lincoln, yes, it is um, about Abraham Lincoln. But I'm going to let Jonathan explain a little bit more about what kind of it is. But it's a, like I said, it's a very interesting series. So, Jonathan, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Thanks very much for having me, John. 
Sure. I mean, and, you know, when, we got, when I got the email and I saw what it was, I was like, oh, you know, let me check this out. And then I started reading, and I was like, wait a second. I go, this is a great brand-new take that you've kind of done because there's been Abraham – you know, we all know Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and things like that. But this is kind of a little bit different that you've kind of done by bringing Lincoln in. And then, of course, it's the Lincoln and Speed series. Um, so the latest book, Perish from the Earth. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this one? Okay, great. So let me start by uh, talking about who Lincoln and Speed are. Um, as you say, uh, they're uh, both real-life uh, figures, and in real life they were best friends and roommates for four years uh, together living on the frontier. Uh, as you say, Lincoln is Abraham Lincoln, who at once is one of the most written-about people and characters in uh, U.S. history, uh, but this is focusing on the young Lincoln, which is a much less well-known Lincoln. The series is set in the late 1830s when Lincoln uh, was a brand-new lawyer just sworn into the bar in Springfield, Illinois, uh, unmarried, uh, and he uh, moves to town uh, not knowing anyone, carrying all of his worldly possessions in two saddlebags. And the first person he meets when he comes to Springfield is a shopkeeper named Joshua Speed, who is the well-born uh, second son of a wealthy Louisville, Kentucky uh, plantation-owning family. Uh, Speed had struck off on his own uh, and ended up on the frontier in uh, uh, Springfield running a general store. Um, Lincoln asks Speed if he can... Uh, buy some bedding because uh, Lincoln's new to town um, and needs a place to sleep. Speed quotes the price of the bedding. Lincoln says, I don't have it. And Speed says, well, there's an extra berth upstairs in my bed because upstairs from the general store, in the room above the store, there are two, uh, two double beds where four men sleep. And the uh, bed that Speed is sleeping in, right now only Speed is sleeping in, the person who's been sleeping with him, uh, has uh, departed, and so uh, Speed invites Lincoln uh, to move into the extra berth. It was very common in the frontier for uh, two single men to share a bed because beds were pretty rare back then, and that's the rest of history. The two men lived together for four years and remain lifelong friends. Now, everything I've told you is true. None of that is my invention. That's uh, real history, uh, and when I discovered that real history a couple years ago, I said to myself, oh, this is a fantastic idea for a historical fiction, historical mystery series. I see uh, Lincoln and Speed here as best friends, uh, roommates, sparring partners. Uh, Lincoln uh, is, a, at the time, a, a lawyer, including a lawyer in a lot of criminal cases. Uh, and I had immediately, when I uh, learned about uh, their friendship, had this notion of Lincoln and Speed as Holmes and Watson on the American frontier, where the young Lincoln is the Holmes figure, the great man uh, who uh, is the principal in solving mysteries, in his case through the uh, legal cases he takes on, and Speed is his best friend, his roommate, and also the narrator of the books for the readers. So that was the original conception. Uh, as you said, the first book, uh, which is called These Honored Dead, which uh, the first chapter of These Honored Dead is basically a nonfiction account of the actual meeting of Lincoln and Speed that I just related for you. Uh, These Honored Dead came out last year uh, uh, and did really well. I'm very happy with how it did, both critically and in terms of sales. 
and then Perish from the Earth, the second book in the series, just came out last month. Now, when you're writing kind of a time period piece, and I always kind of like to ask the authors, you know, when you're doing something, that's because it's not a time frame that you lived in. So, you know, you're having to rely a lot of research on what people said and, you know, the things that were written down. So when you decided that this is how you were going to go and you were going to go back this to, you know, to this time period and start working on it, what was some of your challenges while you were trying to, you know, make sure that you basically you had to immerse the reader back you know, into that 1840s kind of time period before Lincoln became president and, and how these things kind of ramped up because it was a time frame that was much different from what people know about Lincoln. Of course, they know him from like the 60s until, you know, pretty much a short little span of his life. What were your challenges with that one? Right. So I, I did a lot and have done a lot of original first-person research um, in writing the books because I wanted them to be uh, – uh, you know, I, I love historical fiction, and I think the best historical fiction uh, gives the reader a sense of what would it have really been like to be back in the time period in question. And since here I'm writing as Speed, Speed is the narrator, and therefore writing as the best friend of the person who's going to become the most famous person in American history, right. only this is uh, early days, both of them are in their 20s, and neither of them knows that. That is, we, the modern-day reader, know that Lincoln is Lincoln, but back then he's just Abe. He's just uh, another 20-something yep. trying to make his way on the frontier. And so I wanted to try to convey an immediacy about life on the frontier uh, so that you could really have the experience as the reader of riding along on the shoulder of speed as he sits across from the table at Lincoln, uh, from Lincoln as they're eating breakfast at the Globe Tavern in Springfield or sits in the front row of uh, Judge Thomas's courtroom in Springfield as Lincoln stands up and argues cases or uh, lies in the bed next to Lincoln uh, as they talk through their day and, in, in my case, try to puzzle through the mystery that they've gotten themselves involved in. So to try to recreate that sense and really give the, sense, the reader an immediate sense of being there, I, I've done a ton of historical research in a lot of ways, the research relating to Lincoln is the easiest part um, because so much is known about him. Uh, for example, uh, I've done an exhaustive research on Lincoln's actual legal cases because the mysteries that uh, he gets into that he and Speed have to solve in my books um, are all very much directly inspired by actual mystery, actual cases that Lincoln handled during his law career. Uh, he was, of course, a very prolific lawyer for nearly two decades before he ran for the presidency. Uh, but Lincoln's life is very well documented, uh, and with a lot of you know hard work and effort, which I put into it, uh, that's been relatively easy to recreate. What's been a lot harder to recreate, uh, and I hope that I've done so successfully, and in the end, is sort of the life and times. What was it like to live on the frontier? Springfield is now... Uh, the capital of Illinois, it was actually not quite yet the capital at the time the books are set. It was becoming the capital, but it was basically a backwards frontier town. There were 2,000 people who lived there. The roads were not paved. There was nothing. You know, there was no lighting. Uh, the telegraph had not reached Springfield. The railroad had not reached Springfield. So it was very much an isolated uh, town on the frontier. And also, life was very hard. Uh, people died all the time for all sorts of 
natural and unnatural reasons, which parenthetically is good for the mystery writer because it makes it easy to come up with uh, plausible uh, period-specific reasons why people die to, you know, uh, provoke uh, or set off a mystery. Um, But people on the frontier didn't spend a lot of time writing about how they, you know, went about their daily life, what they ate, where they slept, what they talked like. They were busy staying alive, basically. Uh, what I ended up finding as a great source was travel diaries. Um, huh. As I said, people on the frontier pretty much worried about staying alive back then. Uh, but there were a lot of Easterners and Europeans who traveled out to the West. Uh, the Illinois. Oh. oh, we lost Jonathan here, it seems. I think he was on Skype. Maybe his Internet kind of went down. So. Um, hopefully he'll be able to call back in here and, and, and we'll get to him. But it, it really is a very fascinating read um, that, that people need to, you know, should, you know, pick up. When I love when authors kind of take these, uh, you know, real-life characters and kind of put them more into this fictional setting that they're really not comfortable being in. And us as readers are able to, you know, see them kind of in a different light, kind of get a little different taste of, you know, what they are. I've always been fascinated, like, what would be, you know, like if, you know, like if Jack Reacher was going after the DC sniper, um, you know, what would that be like? Or, you know, what if, you know, Perot was investigating, you know, Jack the Ripper? I mean, um, you know, just, you know, something interesting to kind of put the real life with the fiction and, and, and kind of see kind of how that works. It, it gets himself some really great stories and it's really fun to see authors using and expanding kind of that, um, that world and bending and twisting it a little bit. So we're able to not only get a lot of the historical value and the historical part of, uh, of what it is, but Oh, here's Jonathan back. Jonathan, we lost you for a second, but glad Hello? you're back. Yep. Yeah, sorry about that. So I was saying uh, uh, people traveled out west and wrote up travel diaries, you know, literally daily accounts of their experience on the frontier. Um, many times uh, the writers are horrified by the, you know, from their perspective, terrible living conditions that people are under. Uh, but that really provides a minute record of what it was like to live on a day-to-day basis on the frontier. And so I, I have collected a large number of travel diaries from the 1830s of people who went out to Illinois. And from those, I've been able to extract, you know, really a wealth of details and hopefully sort of embroider them all together and really create for the reader a sense of what it would have been like to eat next to Lincoln, to sleep next to Lincoln, to, you know, dress next to Lincoln, to appear in court next to Lincoln, all of the sort of great details that that again, I think, make up the best in historical fiction. Now, when you when you look back at the first book, and you know, and you you, you put together these honored dead, and you know, you're creating the plot, and and you're creating other characters around. And the re- I'm just going to go back to the first, uh, and then we'll kind of move forward here into the second one. But you know, what kind of secondary characters did you want to make sure were very important to the story? Because you know, again. You know, you're, you're wrapping up a mystery within this whole historical kind of setting, like you said, you know, to make people believe that they're back in that 1840s kind of time. But it's still a mystery that's involved in everything that's going on. So you still have all these other characters. 
So what were you trying to make sure that you had that complemented Lincoln and Speed so well while you're creating this mystery with these secondary characters? Right. So I have a variety of other historical figures who are secondary characters. So, you know, Simeon Francis was one of the newspaper men in uh, Springfield at the time. He's a character. Uh, the actual judge who presided over Lincoln's trials back then is a character. Some of the other lawyers at the Springfield Bar are characters. Um, a, a very important secondary character I have is Speed's younger sister, Martha. Um, Speed, in fact, did have a younger sister named Martha, um, who not a lot about is known about, uh, but I've taken her and um, elevated her into a uh, sort of co-starring, sort of a supporting actress kind of role. Um, uh, she's younger than Speed. She moves in these honored dead. She sort of tricks her father into letting her come to Springfield to stay with Joshua, her older brother. And once she gets there, she refuses to leave and, to the contrary, uh, sort of forms an investigative team uh, that, with Lincoln and Speed, forms an integral part of the investigative team. Uh, and I've heard from a lot of my readers that Martha is their favorite character. Um, the reason that I did that is, you, you know, when you're looking at that time period, one very interesting issue is issues of race and, of course, slavery. Um, and it's interesting because Lincoln and Speed historically are on opposite sides of that. Lincoln obviously is the great emancipator, uh, and even in the 1830s was a strongly um, uh, pro-freedom, pro-emancipation, anti-slavery voice. And Speed, as I said at the beginning, uh, grew up on a plantation. Uh, his family's wealth was tied up with the uh, forced labor of enslaved African Americans. Uh, and so that's an issue that they disagreed about in real life and disagree about in my book series. Um, and so just having Lincoln and Speed, you know, naturally allowed me to explore those issues in the book. I also wanted to explore issues of gender because I feel like there's some really interesting things about what women could and couldn't do uh, back um, on the frontier in the 1840s in America. Uh, there's some, there are plenty of things that women could not do. They couldn't vote. Uh, married women could not uh, own property. Uh, but there are also some surprising things that they could do. Uh, and I thought uh, having a strong female character, and that's uh, the Martha character, Joshua's younger sister, uh, in the series and interacting with Lincoln and Speed uh, would uh, naturally let me get into and be able to explore in the stories and therefore sort of interest the reader with issues of, uh, again, the role of women in American society at the time. So, uh, again, Martha Speed is a main secondary character for me. And then in addition to the uh, actual historical characters, uh, I have a variety of other uh, secondary characters that I've sort of made up for my own dramatic purposes. Uh, but in pretty much every one of those cases, the made-up characters are directly based on other actual historical figures that I discovered in my research. And going from the first book to the second book now, Perish from the Earth now is the second book, what's one of the things that you learned as an author maybe from the first that people might notice, hey, you know, Jonathan maybe did a little bit of you know, different kinds of things here in the second book, um, and some of those things are conscious decisions, and some of those things are not conscious decisions that when you kind of look back on, you're like, oh, well, that was kind of cool I did that. What kind of, what will kind of the reader know uh, as Jonathan Putnam, the author, going from book one now into book two? Well, I, I think um, my writing in terms of uh, Speed's voice is hopefully a little bit 
uh, even clearer and uh, rings even more true to the times. Um, in, in addition to the de getting the details right, I, I worked hard to get the language right. So um, mm -hmm. Speed, when he's talking to you as the reader, hopefully he sounds like uh, someone from the 1830s uh, would sound like or what we imagine they would sound like. We obviously have no way to know for sure, but uh, I've worked hard in the language to try to make it sound like uh, they would sound like. I I've also um, tried to tie the plot very directly to Lincoln. You know, I, I'm using Lincoln as a character, um, uh, but it's not a gimmick. I, I want to make it so that these are mysteries that we need Lincoln to solve. There's got to be something about the mystery that it can't just be any old lawyer from the 1830s or any old investigator from the 1830s who is the, effectively the detective, the person who cracks the mystery. But it's got to be something about the case that uniquely Lincoln can solve. Um, and I think with, if your listeners uh, read Perish from the Earth um, and uh, see what the mystery is and see how it gets solved, they'll see what I mean by that and see how this really is a mystery that only the young Abraham Lincoln could have solved. Uh, just to very briefly give you and your readers a plot summary of Perish from the Earth. Sure. Perish from the Earth is set on a, mostly on a Mississippi River steamboat, one of the great steamers uh, that went up and down the Mississippi River at the time. There's a crooked card game aboard one of those steamboats. Uh, as often happened, that crooked card game leads to a murder. Lincoln and Speed get involved and need to investigate that murder. Uh, and as they investigate it, uh, they learn that there was a lot more going on on the steamboat um, than just uh, the crooked card game. There's a lot of other chicanery going on in the steamboat. And uh, Lincoln and Speed need to figure out what's going on. And Lincoln ends up getting uh, faced with a dramatic choice uh, in the book. He's got to figure out uh, whether to save his client or whether to um, serve a cause he holds dear. And the sort of dramatic tension and the dramatic conclusion, hopefully dramatic conclusion of the book, involves Lincoln figuring out, and uh, as the reader we get to see him figuring out, how can he uh, try to save his client's life and not compromise a cause he holds dear. Very good, very good. Um, so now, were, were history books kind of where you, you know, grew up your love to kind of write this, and then it kind of, you know, got yourself into more of a fictionalized thing? What kind of is your background that you decided this is, these are the kind of books that you wanted to, to write? Right, so I was actually a trial lawyer uh, at a big law firm in New York City for 20 years, um, I tried all sorts of cases in courts all around the country and had a full career doing that. Um, writing had always sort of been the path not taken for me. Writing had always been what I would have done, I knew, if what I would have done if I hadn't been a lawyer. And after I'd had this uh, career for 20 years and felt good about it, you know, I asked myself, am I sure do I, that I want to do this for the next 20 years or do I want to give writing a try? Because, again, that had always been out there as the thing I wasn't doing uh, when I was practicing law. I had been a history major uh, in college and always loved history. And they say write what you know, which is, I think, good advice. And what I knew was law. And so that immediately got me to the area of a law-related historical fiction. I was doing um, some noodling around trying to think of famous uh, lawyers from history who I might be able to uh, set a historical fiction series around. Um, I thought of a number of possibilities, but Lincoln was one obvious possibility that uh, came to my mind. 
And then when I learned about Speed and this relationship that he had with Speed, a young man who uh, was in many respects similar to him, an ambitious young man on the frontier, and yet a young man who was in many respects very different from him, a pro-slavery Southerner who'd, been, who'd grown up in an intact, very wealthy family compared to Speed, you know, compared to Lincoln, who had grown up in a broken family in a one-room dirt floor cabin uh, uh, struggling to get by. When I, re- when I found out about the real-life relationship between Lincoln and Speed, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I settled immediately on that being the, the core of the mystery series. Yeah, I mean, you could have very easily fallen into the 2017 legal thriller with all the technology and the smartphones and everything else, but I find it fascinating, you know, and I love being able to go back to the simpler time when the mystery and the characters are the things that were the, the forefront and the most important, I think a lot of authors today that kind of write mysteries and, and kind of write, they, they almost use technology too much of a crutch, and they don't expand themselves, and I think that they kind of shortchange themselves by using technology as a crutch, and I think that it's wonderful that, you know, you have to really dive in and, and write very solid characters with a very solid plot because Lincoln wasn't going to get an email from somebody saying, hey, guess what, I got something from this, or he wasn't going to pick up his cell phone and Google something. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's not yeah, going to do that. Technology, technology, in 18, technology in 1837 was the horse-drawn carriage right. and the steamboat. And information moved slowly, people moved slowly. Um, it was, you know, a, mo- uh, a lot of horse, lots of people didn't have a horse. They had to walk to the neighboring town. Of course, you couldn't. As I said earlier, there was no railroad in Springfield yet, and there was no telegraph. So, um, you, you know, one of the challenges and hopefully one of the pleasures of my books is I, I try to make them happen very fast. I try to make the action happen very fast so that you're drawn in and, you know, they're books that you can't put down. But the, the actual events themselves and the characters are, by our modern standards, moving incredibly slowly because there is no technology. You can't email someone mm-hmm. for a question. You can't call them on their smartphone. You can't get on an airplane or get in the car and be a place, you know, 100 miles away or 1,000 miles away that day. That Traveling 100 miles that is a week-long journey at best uh, for my characters. So sort of trying to figure out how to do the optical illusion of having a fast-paced story um, in, a slow, in a fundamentally slow-paced world is one of the fun things that I've had to deal with. And, again, hopefully I've done successfully and is one of the pleasures that you get from reading the series. Yeah, I mean, simpler times um, I think are just lost. And, and, I, and I, you know, you, you, there's everybody in today is so fast and so quick and everything's got to be now, 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 now that I think when you're able to kind of slow the reader down a little bit in these books, and take them on a slower kind of journey. Like you said, you can't hop on a plane and you're not in Dubai, and then you hop on another plane and then you're in London, and then you hop on another plane and you're back in the United States. Everything is nice and compact. And in a city that is a capital, but one of the smallest capitals in the United States, I mean, you know, people, you say, what's the capital of Illinois? People might, you might get eight out of ten people saying Chicago. You know, so I, yeah. I think when you're, and, and, and it wasn't even the capital at the time. The capital of Illinois, when my books were set, is it was an even smaller town further south called Vandalia. The Illinois legislature had just voted to move it to Springfield, um, 
but they, there, there was an economic panic in 1837. This is part of the backdrop of some of my stories as well. And so the state of Illinois ran out of money. That's a common, that's a modern theme school <laughs> they, 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 they still and are. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so um, the, the state moved, the, the state legislature voted to move the capital to Springfield and promptly ran out of money to build a new capital, to literally build a new capital building. So they laid a cornerstone for the new capital building, and then that was it. They stopped construction. At the time my books are set, the uh, cornerstone is literally in the middle of a field with weeds growing all around it because that's the extent of the official state government building in Illinois. They're waiting for, to find some money to continue building. Well, I'll tell you, Jonathan, it has been fabulous talking to you. I want to kind of let you give the last word on the best place for everyone to kind of find out more about your works and if you're going to be, um, you know, at any events where people can find out about you. You know, give everybody all those fun, uh, you know, social media new technology kind of ways for them to find you. <laughs> okay, great. So first of all, I Oh, no. And that was the wrong time for his phone to just drop. Uh, hopefully he'll call back in again real quick. But it's Jonathan F. Putnam, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, fputnam.com is his website that you can go check out. Um, you know, on there, he'll, he'll have information about how to find, you know, things out, events, and, and where he's going to be, um, his Twitter and, and Facebook. So, you know, you can go there. It's probably the best place to, to connect with everything that Jonathan has going on. So, jonathanfputnam.com, and the book is called Parish from the Earth. Um, he hasn't called back in yet, so what we're going to do here is is I'll give him like another 30 seconds and see. Oh, and here he is. Hopefully, he can get me on here and do it. Jonathan, we lost you again, man. You back? Jonathan? Oh, no, he's not. So, okay. So, JonathanFPutnam.com. The book is called Perish from the Earth. It is the second in the Lincoln Speed series with the first book being called These Honored Dead. So make sure you check that out. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll hopefully be back here with our next guest, and her, uh, J.L. Duchette, and her book is going to be called Last Scene. So we will see you in a second.
everybody um jonathan did call in but he called back in when we were kind of on a break so kind of missed him but again make sure you go to jonathanfputnam.com and check that out and phone dropped at such the wrong time but now we're halfway through the show and we are now here with our next guest and jl um her name is jl duchette and the book is called last scene it's the first in a great character name dr pepper hunt uh, mystery series, and so we want to make sh- you know it's the first time we've ever spoken with JL, so we're uh, very happy to be able to have her on as a guest. So JL, thank you so much for coming on. How you doing? I'm doing great today, John. Nice to be with you. Like you know, like I said, Dr. Pepper Hunt. I mean, it's just such a great um, name. Uh, I mean, it just kind of you kind of you just kind of makes you smile when you just kind of say Dr. Pepper Hunt, and you know, and it's the first now in a series called Last Scene. So, give us a you know a taste of of what you got going on here for the readers. Okay, I'll tell you about uh, first of all how Dr. Pepper Hunt, the, how the name came to be. It was probably like the fifth in a series of names that I had chosen, each one kind of following the development of the character's personality. And by the time I got to Pepper Hunt, um, she was coming more and more into being quite a um, feisty character who has a lot of fight in her and also a sense of humor. And so I wanted to find a, you know, a name that would convey those personality characteristics. And I never actually put together um, the idea that Dr. Pepper is a, a soda, you know, <laughs> until right. my um, my publicist did some great um, advertising and marketing pictures for me with the actual Dr. Pepper um, pictured there. Um, so in any case, she is um, a psychologist. She's a forensic psychologist, which means she works with um, a lot of court-related cases. And this series is going to evolve from basically her work with different patients or different um, psychological kind of issues that are happening in, in the community where she practices. So the first book... Uh, takes place as one of her patients disappears in the middle of a Wyoming blizzard. And this particular patient happens to have a psychiatric condition in which 
there's a symptom called dissociation where she can kind of lose sight of where she is for hours at a time. So the question at the beginning, did, did she just have one of these dissociations? Did she intentionally leave? Did someone, you know, do something to harm her? And that's where the story starts. Now, when you decided that you wanted to kind of jump into this genre and, you know, that you wanted to get into, into writing mystery, why was Dr. Pepper Hunt the perfect person to, to lead your series? I mean, that's a big decision to okay. make. Yes. Well, so I'm a psychologist myself, and I, I, better I watch love what my I say, work. As then. A, <laughs> <laughs> that's what everybody says. Like, well, uh, no, that's the first thing somebody says. Like, when you see an IRS agent, you're like, <laughs> um, I don't want to talk to you. And when you see a psychologist, right. you're like, oh, shit, is she analyzing me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the it's got to be tough to go on so first date to as a psychologist. Everything. You know, it's got to be tough when you go on, like, a first date, like, with a psychologist because you're like, are they analyzing, like, everything I say? And, you know, it's got to be hard. Yes, it makes people nervous. It definitely it does. does. Yeah. But anyway, I, you know, I love being a psychologist, and it's, like, it's endless, like, material about human beings and all the kinds of ways that we can be and the trouble that we can get into. So, but what what happened was the year that I just, I first started practicing um, 1985 was also the year that Jonathan Kellerman, I'm sure you know that name, oh, yeah. Delaware, um, yeah. published his first book, When the Bow Breaks. I read it, and I just, the, uh, at that time, I thought this is a perfect thing for, I, I have always loved mystery, but seeing the perfect combination of having a psychologist as, as you know, part of the a detective novel because of so many crimes, so many mysteries involve a psychological component and motivation and that this would be, you know, a way to educate people about different kinds of psychological things as well as just enrich the story. So, um, so that's why I chose to use Dr. Pepper, someone who has shares my professional life. And it's just a very nice like blend for me of those two points of my life. Fabulous. And so the yeah. Now, so the the trick is though to kind of use, kind of use what she knows as a psychologist to convey that as part of the kind of growing suspense of the story without like overloading people with like too much clinical that would slow things down. Mm-hmm. So that that was the challenge of the story. And when you're writing kind of a professional novel and. Of course, a, a, a you know it takes a lot of schooling, of course, to become a psychologist. I mean, probably what six to eight years after the fact, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that you have to, you know, because there's, you know, you know the you know the um, the profession in a way that people, you know, of course, they only see the surface. So when you're having to kind of dumb things down for the reader, does that take on a, a special challenge for yourself in order to, you know, kind of you know, kind of relay not only, you know, that Dr. Pepper, you know, or that I'll just say Dr. Hunt, that Dr. Hunt, mm-hmm. um, you know, is in her profession, but you also have to let the reader sort of not get overwhelmed in the jargon of what it's like to be a psychologist. 
So you gotta have to, so you kind of have to move things around a little bit. So is that a challenging thing that you're that you that that you were kind of finding out when you sort of got the edits back and they're like, I wouldn't use this word because people might not know what that is. So can you say it another way? Right, that is that is a, a challenge because you don't want to like. Simplify things You'll confuse too much the hell out of so me if you start using medical any... terms. I'll just tell you. Right. <laughs> that confuses me all the day. I'm like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> right, right. Well, even the the term that I just spoke about, dissociation. Now, that's something that every psychologist is going to know about, but I don't think it's a very commonly used term in in, in lay public, right? So, um, right. To be able to talk about that without it's a, it is challenging using a lot of words because basically what happens is when people dissociate that means they are kind of triggered which is another triggered by some kind of traumatic thing that's happening that makes them basically leave sort of their mind kind of leaves the body and they they can go about functioning for sometimes days at a time not actually being fully present, their mind connected to their body. So they have these experiences of sort of coming to, like waking up, like, why am I here? They've forgotten whether it's a day, an hour, 10 minutes, but they do not know what happened to them. So trying to talk about that in, you know, simple terms and yet convey what a disconcerting experience that must be for people. And how's the journey been? How was the journey when you decided to start writing this book and then you finally finished it and then you're like, oh, God, now i got to get people to read it. <laughs> how's that <Yes>. been? <laughs> well, it has been a journey. And the word finally, I think it's a very apt word because it it was quite a number of years in the making. And I always like to talk about how um, how it started and how I Please finally do. was able to start it. And that is um, way back in 2009, I discovered a book called No Plot, No Problem, which you're probably familiar with, Chris Beatty from NaNoWriMo. Does that sound familiar? I've heard of the book, yes. I've not read it, but I I do know of it. Okay, so the the concept that he came up with was that most people uh, who have ideas to write books don't ever, don't finish them, and the reason is that they become... Uh, very like self-critical in the process. And so he thought, well, maybe if we just ask people to write like a 50,000-word draft in 30 days with absolutely no editing or second-guessing, just get your your story out there, at least you'd have a first draft that then you could rewrite. I thought that was a great idea. And so that November, I committed to doing that and wrote the first draft of what is now last scene. So, but but it then took took a full five years of writing, editing, rewriting because a fifty thousand word draft completed in thirty days is probably not going to be very good and needs a lot of right. work. And so, and then it was another couple of years before I found um, my way, and they found me. She writes press, which is a um, an independent, small independent press that um, publishes women writers. I, and so they published last scene this May. So it has been a long journey, but it's been um, it's been really exciting to kind of move from one step to the next toward this goal that I've had for a long time. 
And when they decided that they were going to publish, were they the ones who said, hey, we want this as a series, or did you kind of sell it as a series? Because I think a lot of authors, because we take a lot of pitches, and a lot of authors don't really know how they should kind of, you know, bring the thing to the table because a lot of them will just come right up and say, okay, so I got a four-book series in mind, and this one I'm going to – and I'm like, well, hold on. How do you know it's going to be four well, yeah. books? We haven't even edited the first one yet and seen it. So <laughs> how, how is that? You know, when did that start creeping into your mind that you wanted this to kind of be a, a, a series? So what happened was I really loved the 50,000 words in 30 days, um, which produced, like, the first book. And so I now have four other 50,000-word drafts. Um, I just kept doing that, and so... I, I knew I wanted it to be a series. I probably would have written, had I not wanted a series, I would have written a different kind of a book, perhaps more of a kind of standalone thriller. Um, uh-huh. But because I, I liked the character, and I liked the idea of coming back to some of the same characters. I just kept producing um, drafts of the, of the following books that uh, Pepper Hunt will be involved with. And also, um, there's another character that she partners with who's a Native American detective. His name is Bo Antelope. And so they have, um, they have a relationship that begins in the first book and continues throughout the series. And he becomes sort of even more of a, sort of a co-detective with her over time. So looking forward now, and we're going to, you know, kind of looking forward into into what you want to, you know, want this series to go. Mm-hmm. Has your mind changed a hundred times after now that you're finished and you start thinking about book two? I mean, I'm sure that book two is probably almost done. Uh, normally they are, if mm-hmm. it's not already in editing right now and you're kind of on to book three. But how how often did it change? I mean, did your mindset kind of change a little bit from once you finish to now, you know, seeing it's on paper and having to and having to do book two. So I don't think that in terms of the the two main characters and how they're going to evolve has um has not changed very much. That's been kind of like a, a grounding principle. Um all of the stories are stories that revolve around some sort of like psychological issue that um, kind of in the in the first book is this particular disorder and the question of whether this is what happened to her or something else gets gets resolved in the second book which is uh, I am almost finished with it uh, hoping to get it um, to editing and so that it can be published in 2018 um, the second book is called On a Quiet Street, and it is um, a story about um, about. And I'm not sure I want to say too much about it, but it does have something to do with the kind of sins of the past, kind of coming uh-huh. um, back and having their effect on characters in the present. So it does involve. Yeah, I realize I can't talk about it without without possibly revealing sure, something yeah, that I want to tough. reveal. But in any case, in any case, they all of them um, are kind of grounded in a particular psychological condition and the effect that that can have 
um, on on people around it, not only just the person who's experiencing it, but people are interacting with that, and and how it can intersect with crime and and legal effects. Because that's what now, you want. I, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going well, to I, mean, I was going to kind of turn a little bit because. Oh, because I see that, you know, you're a member of the Wyoming Writers Organization and you're part of Sisters in Crime. Um, when, how, for, for new authors that, you know, they all kind of had a writing group and, and a lot of them have a writing group and that's kind of maybe where they bounce ideas off and things like that. But how do you find that these bigger organizations like the, the Writers Group in Wyoming and, and Sisters in Crime, how, how do they kind of help you um, – and in your writing, you know, what, what kind of things, you know, do you, you know, look at uh, that you want to try to get out of it? And what can new authors, you know, do you recommend that they kind of do these things? Well, one of the things that I have found is that since writing is such a necessarily solitary experience that um, other things in life sometimes take a backseat, such as friendships and social activities at times are more limited because especially for people who have another career or job and and then you're writing on top of that um, social life can be less active during those times and so one of the things that I found is really important is through these organizations through relationships with other writers um, there is that kind of mutual support both for the work and also acknowledgement of a, a community even if you're not seeing each other all the time you do know that there are other people who are hard at work at the same thing and as well as it, through the process of the social relationship people are extremely generous about sharing resources for um, promotion or learning things that that are helping developing as a writer. So I think that's the, that's the main thing that both large and small groups offer to writers is a way to be part of a community and to get support for continuing in a difficult process. Uh-huh. The, I, I also recently, see that... Um, Go ahead. I was going to say, I recently came um, back from a book tour in the San Francisco Bay Area with, with five other mystery writers also published by She Writes Press. And it was a wonderful experience for exactly that reason, that um, we're all you know working in different parts of the country and maybe occasionally connect through Facebook or email, but to spend time with people who've kind of done the same thing. They've um, written a book that they love and feel passionate about and are now in the process of getting, you know, doing a lot of promotion to get that to the readers. So it really was like very encouraging to spend that time. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the hard parts for author, of course, I mean, I always tell them that writing the book is the easy part. Now you're going to get people to buy it. So you guys, you have to do something, of course, and, and your background is psychology. So it's not like it's, it's, I mean, you're used to talking to people, but more, of course, on a one-on-one, and then right. you have to kind of go out and, 
you know, you kind of have to sell yourself. And that's a difficult thing for newer authors to kind of do. And you're just kind of snipping your toe into this whole thing. So have you, like, talked with other authors? I know that there's one on here um, that I know, Brian Gur- you know, Brian Gurley, uh, Starvation mm-hmm. Lake series. I've talked with him many times. You know, do you, like, always have to pick other authors' brains that have been in it for a while and kind of say, you know, how do you do this? How do you handle this? And, and to just try to, you know, better yourself as you keep going forward because I think a lot of authors don't – you know, I think they're more worried about the writing aspect than they are about, okay, you know, how should I handle my social media and what kind of things should I do like that because that, that's what's going to make you the money. I mean, you've got to write a great book first. But you still got to get people to buy it, and they got to know you're out there. Right. That probably is the sort of biggest surprise for me because when I initially started thinking about uh, writing a mystery, writing a book of any kind, was really even before like social media was part part of our reality. And even in 2009, I'm not sure it was as active the writers are is required to be as actively self-promoting as is absolutely required today this is brand new for me as a psychologist i had pretty much avoided having any kind of social media presence because it's a private kind of experience for the patient and and encouraged not to have other relationships out in the world with your patients so part of the reason that i chose to use my initials, JL, instead of my name, Joanne, was that I mistakenly thought I could keep those two parts of my life separate, which is absolutely impossible um, today. But uh, so I am very newly in social media. I didn't even have a Facebook page until um, about six months before I published Last Scene. And what I'm finding is I had resistance to it. I didn't really understand other than sort of like from an advertising, getting the, the name out there. How how does this work? How can it be helpful? But I'm starting to realize what many, many people have told me, and that is you need to, you need to find the sort of already existing audience for your book and begin to make relationship with them. And that's, it sounds like a simple thing, but it, but really kind of figuring out who, who, who are the people who are going to really love reading about Pepper Hunt and love reading mysteries that have a strong psychological component, maybe even that in that part of the world where it is set, which is it's kind of its own thing has been, uh, you know, taken some time to, to figure that out and I'm I'm in the process of identifying like places where I would develop relationships with them but I now understand that it's not it's not a quick thing it's really something that develops over time and and does require me as the author being more um sort of like personally present in social media than than I ever would have imagined being I can yeah I I can definitely see you know I can definitely see and relate and and relate to those things I mean just from being in the business mm-hmm. for so long I mean mm-hmm. you're echoing what a lot of authors say um without a doubt so mm-hmm. and, and and it's and it's a, it's a fun it's a it's a it's a tough 
it's a tough journey. It's a fun journey. And, you know, that's why a lot of authors at these conferences all sit around bars and drink, and they all kind of, mm-hmm. <laughs> they all kind of tell their horror <laughs> stories. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so going forward, you know, what are people going to see from you? Of course, uh, you're going to continue on this series, but do you have any plans to step outside and, you know, do something different? Or is this just your main focus right now is to just stick with Dr. Hunt and this series, and you have no plans to kind of do anything else? Well, it's interesting that you asked that because another piece of advice that many people give in terms of um, pro- promoting your book and yourself and the you know writing community is to write a blog. And so I've long considered like so if I were going to write a blog if I were ever able to find the time to write a blog on top of trying to finish the next book what would that be and um, what one of the things I'm considering is sort of the opposite of where I was in my thinking which was initially to keep my professional psychological life separate from my author life is that I think um, about bringing them closer together. And it occurs to me that, well, let me just tell you a a personal story. Just um, about a month before my book was published, um, we were in the process of selling the home that I had grown up in, and we did that. And about two weeks after the house sold, it occurred that one of the people working on renovating the house had murdered a young woman from a neighboring Ooh. community and buried her body in the yard of the house that, that uh, I had grown up in. And wow. it was a very, it was a very strange experience because I was obviously all over the news and, and, and the house is being photographed in the sense of that here's this uh, place that had always been, um, very safe with wonderful family member memories now is connected to this really brutal crime and the body is in the yard. And it made me just momentarily second guess the um, sort of the pleasure that I'd gotten from writing a murder mystery, right? Um, that is so, I mean, the book that I wrote and the crime that that happens in it, not very distant from this actual murder of a real person. It just seemed, it just kind of came like too close to home. And I started to wonder, like, is, is that um, like a worthwhile thing for a writer to, to write about murder when clearly these crimes are like heartbreaking and this, you know, so destructive to people who encounter them in real life. And as I've thought about that, I thought, well, so why is it that people love reading in fiction about these things that actually can happen in life? And for myself, I've always loved the mystery because it's a sort of like vicarious experience um, mm-hmm. of evil that really exists in the world. And through this identification, like with the detective, with the person who sorts it out and, and kind of finally, you know, finding the person who committed the crime and bringing justice, having justice restored, I think is a kind of, it's, it, you know, it's a 
one of those experiences that kind of transforms something that's terrifying into something that can have some resolution. So, so I made peace with it's okay to to write murder mysteries, but I also, in thinking about a, you know, writing a blog or doing some other kind of work that will both bring my mysteries to people's awareness, but also to do some writing about how, you know how you know how to be safe, how to recognize characters in life or situations in life that are dangerous from a psychological point of view might might be something that would be worth developing. So that anyway, those are my beginning thoughts about nice. what what else to write and how to enhance this whole experience. Very nice. Well I'll tell you what, we have run out of time and I want to thank you so much for coming on. It is great uh to kind of see that you're now putting your toe, like I said, into this uh, ocean, mm-hmm. and you know, with your first book here called Last Scene, it's a Dr. Pepper Hunt mystery. It's the first one of the new series. So the best place for everyone to find you is just J. L. Duchette, right? D. O. U. C. E. T. T. E. That's the best yes. place. Uh-huh. That's there everything. Is. Well, hey, J. L. We want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been fabulous to talk with you. You have a great day, and we will um, catch up with you in the future. Okay. Thanks, John. Bye bye. Bye bye. So again, everybody, that is all for uh, that is author J L Duchette, and make sure you go to J L Duchette, which is D O U C E T T E dot com for more information on the book Last Scene, first in a new series. Everybody likes to have the first in a new series, so here you go, first in a new series right now called Last Scene. It is a Dr Pepper Hunt mystery series. Um, forensic psychologist is what she is, and make sure that you go and uh, check that out. It's available right now wherever you buy books. So we're going to take our last break. And we will be back with our last guest. So we started off in Ireland, kind of went through New York, Wyoming, and now we're all the way back into L.A., back home with me here. Uh, C.E. Tobisman going to be talking about the latest book called Proof, which is a sequel to the um, book Doubt. So we're going to bring C.E. on here in just a second. In the meantime, you can listen to this. Be right back.
Welcome back here after the break. We have hit the 90-minute mark. We've had three outstanding authors kicking off with, of course, mega author John Conley all the way from Ireland. We went Jonathan Putnam, came back from New York, CE, or J.L. Duchette from the Wyoming, and now we're back in L.A., California, so I'm here with one of my people, C.E. Tobisman, and she is going to be talking about the latest book called Proof, which is, like I just said, the sequel to her um, series uh, with her main author, Carolyn Oden, or Auden, I'm going to say Auden, it starts with an A, A A U D E N, probably probably Auden, she'll probably tell me if I'm wrong or not, and I suck with last names, you all know that, Um, but the first book was called Doubt, and this one is called Proof, so we want to welcome CE to the show, so thank you so much, CE, for coming on, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully I didn't screw up your last name, but it's Tobisman, right? I mean, I kind of said yep, it how you got it, it right. Okay, good, good, good. Because I do suck at last names. If you ever listen to the show, you'll kind of know I, I struggle with last names, and I don't really remember people's faces. I always used to say if I was the one that had to find the people on the milk carton, nobody would be found. And obviously <laughs> it was someone like me doing it because I just recently found out, I was listening to an interview, that I think only two kids out of that whole thing were ever found from the milk cartons. And I'm like, damn, that's, that's sad. Yes, that is sad. I really got sad when I found that out. <laughs> That's tragic. So, yeah, while it was a very popular kind of um, trend, it really didn't do anything. So that was kind of interesting. But let's jump in here to your latest book. Like you said, it was, it's called Proof. It's the sequel to Doubt, where it talks about your character, Caroline Alden. I'm going to hopefully say that right. Um, Auden, so Auden. It's kind of like said. William. It's, it's like the uh, the poet Auden. I don't know why I went oh, with okay. Auden, but Auden, Auden. Caroline Auden. <laughs> okay, yeah. So tell us what you got going on. Sure. So the main character is a hacker turned lawyer. So she's somebody who has dabbled in the dark arts. She has this ability to acquire information through illegal means and using ways of finding information about people that go beyond your usual internet stalking that people might do. Um, but she's a lawyer, and so she has turned sort of away from being a hacker, and she had some bad history being a hacker, got busted being a hacker, and has now decided she's going to be on the straight and narrow. She's going she's to solve cases, but there's this interesting tension between and the law, and sometimes in order to get justice, you're going to end up having to break the law. So when you have this amazing skill set, how do you turn away from it? How do you, when you have an, a, a client who is up against tremendous odds, who is going to have no chance of winning unless you bend some rules, you take somebody with who has sort of an unfailing sense of justice, you're going to you know, get a little bit of, uh, of you know, walk up to that line. You might even get a little chalk on your toes. And then when things get bad enough, you might cross the line. And so that, that's the right. tension that these books play with. And uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I know the legal side of it. I've had to have a number of hacking consultants so that the, uh, the computer parts of it actually work. And then I've had to explain them in a way that makes it fast enough, interesting enough to move the narrative along and not bog down in, in you know, SQL uh, and, and, and code and all this other stuff. But I want it to feel right. authentic um, and be accurate enough that if somebody is a tech person and they pick it up, that it's not like you know the the the, the record needle screeching across the album. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're bringing in a couple hard elements for people to kind of, you know. Of course, you know, law people, everybody thinks they know the law until they actually start getting into it, and then they're like, oh shit, that's against the law. So um, <laughs> that's always kind of good. But like you said, you know, like SQL and things like that, people are pretty like, well. 
what, what's SQL mean? And what's, so, yeah, so you want to try to make it authentic, but you also have to make it, like I was just talking with our last guest, who is a psychologist, you know, whenever you're talking about medical fields, it's very easy to kind of get off on tangents to where people are confused. And they're yeah, like, that's right. I don't know what that's the hell right. they're talking about. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, that, and that's always the balance is that you, you need to, yeah. and I think that's one of the, the sleight of hands that any writer has to, has to master, is how do you drop in the little pieces of information that the, that the person that's reading the book is going to have to know in order to understand what you're talking about. But it's kind of like feeding a kid their greens. Like you've got to sneak it into a shake. You've got to right. find some way to get it to digest easy and to move things along because there's nothing more important when you're talking about a mystery or a thriller than pacing. Um, you have to keep it moving. It, you, know, you, you can take small moments to describe, but at, at least for me, I hate a big block of text. I just kind of glaze over. If you give me a giant paragraph, it's just, it looks too dense. I'm afraid to get into it. So that, that sensibility very much informs how I write because I don't want to bog people down in those tangents. And, and, and even though the tangents are sometimes interesting and fascinating for somebody who loves you know, psychology or hacking or the law, to the vast majority of readers, they're going to kind of like, that's going to be where they're going to put the book down and go make dinner. And, and that's what you don't want. As a reader, your goal mm-hmm. is to keep the pages turning. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's definitely the difficult you know, thing that you have to do is to keep the people engaged and not bog them down with, with facts that you know that should probably be in there. But then you kind of have to kind of say, yeah, but... And you kind of have to, you know, move things around a little bit to, to keep the tension high. I mean, that's, that, that's what you're doing. But when readers kind of want to go back and read the first book, Doubt, because now Proof is the one that is out now, but, but Doubt, you know, had, had, had come out recently, or, had, you know, was, was before, about last, last year. year. Yeah. Um, what is the one thing, I guess, that people, you know, should they go back and read the first one first and then kind of read proof? Because now that it's only two books, it's not like your 14 books and like John Conley was. And it's like tough to tell people, no, you should go all the way back to the beginning and read all freaking 14 to come forward. Um, how would you think? You think that would be the best way for people to kind of jump in is to go to doubt and then get into proof or does it make a difference? Well, I mean, it's, an, it's a great question, and I think that you're right that for a, for a long series, it's difficult to ask somebody to go back and read the first book. Now, on the other hand, by the time you're at book 14, there's so much backstory that the writer is drawing on that you're going to miss a bunch of stuff if you don't go back to the beginning. Right. In some ways, it's easier to recommend jumping in anywhere for, for somebody like me who has two books because really I, both books stand alone as individual books. You, you, you know, it, it, it would inform your experience of proof if you read Doubt first. But it's by no means necessary, and I very intentionally didn't write the second book to provide any spoilers that would ruin your experience if you read the second book first and then went back and read the first book. But as far as character development, you know, what, I, what I've done is I've taken a character who spent some time as a computer engineer, as a software engineer, and, 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 and dealt with her transition. Her you know, doubt begins with her first day of work out of law school, and she's going to a big firm, and she's got her big shot, and she's got this amazing mentor who she thinks is going to guide her in the ways of the law, and things, of course, don't go as planned, and she ends up with this very difficult case, and as she peels back the layers, things are not as, you would, as, they, as she would think, and people who seem like their friends maybe aren't, and she becomes embroiled in this, this, this journey that really makes her a less idealistic lawyer. And at the end of the story, she's in a very different place than she was at the beginning. The second book picks up eight months after that period, and she is you know, kind of in a dark place. 
And one of the things in writing a series and writing a character over and over is, you know, there's like how many bad things can happen to the same person? You know, there's this always, you think of like, you know, a Jack Reacher kind of a character. It's always in the middle of some kind of a mess. And for a regular lawyer, like Caroline Auden is supposed to be, how many times can she step in it and end up in some crazy difficult situation? And so part of it was kind of creating a narrative arc that's authentic to who she is. So if you read the books in order, there's, there's I think, a, a, a clear character arc and where she starts at the beginning of the first book and where she ends at the end of the first book and where she begins at the beginning of the second book and ends at the, at the end of the second book makes a lot of sense, the sort of narrative flow. But you don't need to. And I think that, you know, like any writer, I think that as I've written the books, I'm getting better at it. And I think that in some ways proof as far as how, you know, some people like one book more, some people like the other. You know, I'm still at the stage where I'm compulsively reading reviews as they're coming in on Amazon and Goodreads. And it's interesting to see because some people like the first book because it plays with also ideas about this is a character who struggled with anxiety and uh, has a family with some some uh, substance abuse issues and some and some mental illness issues. And so she's you know, she's she those are a, a bigger part of the first book. And so for people who, for, for, the, for whom those the, those themes resonate, the first book is a great place to start. The second book, she's a bit more comfortable. She's found her sea legs. She's, you know, she's got, she's, she's found her way a bit more. I'm kind of trying to be careful not to give spoilers, but she's in a different place emotionally. And so people who like a more intensely plot-driven arc and less of sort of that psychology piece like the second book. So, I mean, it really doesn't matter where you start. Um, and the goal is for both of them to stand alone and to be really fun, fast reads um, that hopefully leave you with something that makes you want to read the other book. Now, that was awesome, by the way. I just have to hey, let thanks. you know. That was, that was a really good way to put that. But now the one thing that I would really like to know is why Caroline Auden? Why is she the one? Why, would she, why was she the one that you picked to, say, to, to lead your series and, and, to, and to be the one to, to, to really you know, push yourself forward into these books? Why her? Well it's, well, it's a good question, and I think that's always the question for any book. Really, you want to know why this main character? Why not somebody else? Why, what is it about this person? Right. What is it about their personality? Who is this person, and why are they the only person that could be the center of the book? And my goal in uh, in thinking, you know, kind of through that question, was to create a character who felt real. I love Elizabeth Salander from from Girl with the, Trag- the Dragon Tattoo, but she was a bit too kind of omniscient and perfect in her abilities she she yeah she had sort of a a difficult past as a as a foster kid and all that stuff but she really never stepped wrong ever and i wanted to have kind of a hacker character who had some of that same skill set but who had to battle some personal demons because i like to think i mean i i think anybody who's lived any period of time in their life has gone through some stuff and you have those moments where you're sitting up with a sick kid or you're at the hospital with a dear loved one who's, who's, you know, maybe they're dying. And then you have to get up the next day and make your other kid lunch or, or go to work and kind of handle your life. And there's a sort of everyday heroism that I find very appealing. And I wanted some of that about this character. I wanted her family and her history to be difficult and something that she carries with her. But she's always trying to figure out how not to let it grind her down. She has this, this, this very intense kind of basic ner- nervous system where she's 
very perceptive, very sensitive, and has the ability to, she's kind of like, I think there's a part in doubt where you can describe her as sort of like a Ferrari where she can go blisteringly fast or she can end up kind of on the side of the road with, with uh, smoke pouring out from under the hood. And so I wanted to take somebody with incredible gifts, but also some incredible impediments and difficulties and put that person in a, and somebody who has a strong sense of justice and put that person in situations where her integrity would force her to go against what she sees as, as wrong. And this slow awakening that her, her kind of who she is as a human being and her own need to sort of shed herself of some of her difficult past is going to propel her into situations where she's going to have to solve some really terrible stuff and put herself at jeopardy. I mean, the goal, the, the big thing in creating a character is you want to figure out what are they afraid of? You know, what are they terrified of becoming? What is their worst nightmare? And then you want them to have to grapple with those things. And so creating a character with, with some, some difficult history, both as a hacker and as a child of you know, a difficult marriage and a mom with, with uh, alcohol issues and, substance and uh, mental illness issues, was to make somebody who has a need to fix things. Because I think that's a common trope for especially the children of alcoholics, is they feel like they, could, they should be able to fix things. And if they just tried a little harder, they'll be able to. And so I wanted to play with that psychology and see how it played out uh, for my main character. So that's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of how I got where I got. Yeah, I mean, and that's and that's the thought that you have to kind of go into a character because, you know, like I was talking with John Connolly earlier on, on the show, and he said, he goes, more people care about the character than they do about the author. Um, oh. And it's true because if Lee Child were to stop writing or something were to happen and he – decided that, you know, whatever, people are going to be upset that there's no Jack Reacher, not that Lee Child stopped writing. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, I, that's why I think you still see the Tom Clancy's who are, you know, and, you know, and the Vince Flynn's have passed on, but their characters are still being written because I think that's what people want to see. So when you have to go back and, and you know, and you're competing with all these people, I mean, everybody's competing for shelf space, you've got to create that character that kind of stands above the fray but you still got to deliver the great plot and story. And I think that's a massive balance, especially today with so many books being out there. It's a great time for a reader because there's tons to go through. It's a harder time for a writer because you got to get that little bit above the, the noise so people will find you. And the great way to do it is to have a great character. And, oh, no. Uh, looks like she dropped, but she came back. How I'm, I'm, I'm hear, here now. There, I'm back. <laughs> how now. much? Hey, how much did you hear? Because I just did a really great 30-second monologue. Did you miss the whole thing? No, I heard part of it. I got part of it. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, no. What I was saying, and I'll just kind of repeat it again because it wasn't that long. Is when I was talking <laughs> to John Connolly earlier in the show. You know, he was saying that more people care about the character and not the author. And it's true for the fact that because, you know, Tom Clancy, and I just use these two because they passed away, that Tom Clancy and Vince Flynn have died, but their characters continue to live on. I mean, and that's what people are, you know, care about. I don't think they even care that Clancy and, and Flynn are not writing him anymore. They just get to see Jack Ryan. They get to see Mitch Rapp. So when you're talking and you're having to create character development and a plot, it's like you've got to create that character that gets above the noise 
because there's so much saturation right now in books that it's wonderful for readers because we have a plethora to choose from. Publishers no longer control what goes out there. Anybody can kind of publish whatever they want, but it's harder for you as a writer because you do have to get above that noise. And the best way to do it is to have a great character that people are going to remember. I think that's right, and I think that people care more about the person because part of the magic of reading is you climb inside of the character, and you go on this vicarious adventure, and hopefully at the end of it, there's, you feel edified, you feel it was exciting, it was a worthwhile journey, but really it's all about the character, and, and at the end of the day, even for a mystery or a thriller where it's a very plot-driven genre, if you don't have a character that people love, it's just a plot, and and plot yeah. can only take you so far. It's just not enough. It's never enough. And I mean, I, I don't think I think when I started writing, I thought, well, you just got to get the plot right. And at, at, the more I've gotten into it, and I think I'm you know working on the third book now, it's become more and more about a character study. And and every one of the things I love about the Harry Bosch books, for instance, is that every single one of those books, the main character Harry has to unpack some aspect of who he is. Every single adventure, every single mystery, in some ways, the reasons why he has to follow it, how, why he has to get involved, is because he's solving some part of his own psychopathology or his own history as a Vietnam War vet or whatever that past history is. And so, you know, in reading and getting attracted to a character and wanting to stick with the series, it has everything to do with the heart and the humanity and the, the experience of being human that's reflected in your main character. Yes, yes, without a doubt, that is, um, that's a hundred percent true. Because yeah, and one of the one, when, it, when one you read when, when you when you get a mystery thriller or whatnot, there's no great deviation of plots anymore. I mean, really, there isn't. I mean, you know, a murder investigation, whatever crime, something to that effect. I mean, that's basically the the skin of it. So the rest of it is. How are the characters handling those situations, and they're all going to do something different? That's where the uniqueness has to come in. That's a really, really perceptive thing to say because I think it, it's kind of. I remember, remember reading about like the the ancient Greek tragedies. Oh, those those audiences would go to see Oedipus Rex or any of those. They knew the story. Everybody in the theater knew the story. They all knew the tragedy. They all knew what was going to happen. They all knew he's going to gouge his eyes out. They all knew all the all the narrative beats were written in stone. What they didn't know was how this particular production was going to get to them. And that has right. to do with, with, with character. It has to do with voice. And those are the irreplaceable parts. That's what people read for. I mean, in writing doubt and in writing proof, my goal was to try to bend some of the genre conventions because I agree with you. You kind of know where it's going. And sure, you know, you're going to start out with some bad thing. There's going to be some inciting event, a death, something. And then the character is going to get roped in and they're going to start investigating. Bad things are going to happen. And at the end, you're going to have resolution. All that is true. But the beats along the way, a good book will zig when you think it's going to zag. You're going to think you're going to see it coming. And, you know, it, the reader is always trying to solve the mystery with the, with the writer who's writing it. And, and it's got to go places that the reader doesn't expect it to go. Or it's not a very good book. Otherwise, you saw every single thing coming and everybody was predictable. And the more you read in the genre, the more you know what's going to happen. And so, for instance, in the second book, in Proof, I've made an effort to take the story into places that, that, that books tend not to go. Um, you know, what, what Caroline has an uncle who's living on the streets. And he lives in a world where if you live in Los Angeles and you drive over past the Arts District east of downtown, if you've seen the tent right. cities down there, it is an oh, unbelievable yeah. world. It's, sh it's, it's shocking that it exists in the United States. 
and it's oh, fascinating yeah. to see. And so one of the things I really wanted to do is to kind of delve, what is that world like? What is currency like in that world? What is honor in that world? What does it mean to be a part of that world? Is it just a bunch of mentally ill people? Are there people there who voluntarily? Are there, what are the circumstances that put people on the streets and make them stay on the streets? And, and, you know, I did a bunch of research and spent a lot of time on that side of town. And one of my reasons for doing that is, is to break out of the, well, I already know where the story is going to go. I already know what these characters are going to do. And having part of the cast of characters be these, these kind of broken toys and, and disturb people in some instances, noble people in some instances, gave me a cast of people that were going to zig when you thought they were going to zag because they already have. They ended up on the street. That's, that, that is a giant zig. And, and, I, and I liked the, the education that it gave me, too. It's one of the great things about being a writer is you're always learning. You're always, you're always curious about the world. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, it, all, it all does circle back to who is the character who finds themselves in the circumstance and how do they find their way out of it. I'm going to switch gears a little on you because I don't want to kind of run out of time before you have a chance to talk about it because I, I just I'm I'm a comic book fan and I see that you are doing something in that kind of comic world. Can you kind of explain what this is going to be? And it looks like it comes out when sometime in 2018, right? Winter. So yeah, it's the, going to be yeah, a year from now. The first couple issues actually exist. Um, the publisher is Emmett oh. Comics, and the uh, the the series is called Inside the Loop. And uh, the publisher wants to release it as a full graphic novel, so a full um, six-issue run in 2018, rather than just continuing to issue floppies. Because uh, I think the the conventional wisdom is that we, we, you know it's not very satisfying to get only a 20-page floppy, um, and so it, they sell better when they're when they're all kind of bound together. And Emmett Comics is an amazing comic book company. It was created uh, by a woman to kind of create female-driven stories. Um, her view is she did a bunch of market research, the publisher, um, and they, they determined that well over half of comic book readers are women. And it's a group that's sort of underserved by the comic book universe. There are some notable standouts like you know, Wonder Woman and Batwoman, and, 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 there, and, there, and there are great, great stories, but, but a lot of women aren't served by the genre. So, so the story that I've written is about uh, it takes place in kind of a futuristic world where there are two cities that, that kind of – uneasily coexist with each other one is sort of thug capitalist wild west anything goes and the other is sort of this uh various kind of socialist everybody gets enough but nobody gets uh nobody there's you know there's not really good medical care you kind of you kind of you get what you get and the main character is a private investigator i'm sorry a uh, police officer in the collective which is the socialist universe and she gets stricken with a terrible disease, and there's no really good medical care there. If you want to survive, you've got to go into the loop. And the loop is off limits to people in the collective. It's illegal to go there. Uh, her own mother disappeared there when she was stricken by the same disease, periodic, kind of like the Black Death, and it periodically just kind of strikes both communities. Um, and so her story begins with her having to move from this world that she's known to this world she's only ever heard about and all of the kind of stories about what a terrible place it is. And she's going there for her own survival, but she ends up kind of uncovering the history of her own mom. She ends up um, having to uh, thwart a war. It's a, it's a kind of epic, large story that, that is driven by this one woman's journey to try to save herself, and then it, of course, broadens from there. Yeah, nothing like um, putting more on your plate, huh? 
Yeah. Although, you know, I have to say, I love comics. I, I think it is oh, a I great discipline. Too. It's just, they're, they're so evocative. And who doesn't love books with pictures? Well, who doesn't like magazines with pictures? But I'm getting off yeah. topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that too. That too. So, well, you know what? We're kind of getting down to the end. I, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to kind of let everybody know your social media and everything else that you got going on. So go ahead and kind of tell everybody where they can find you best place if you're going to be in any events and anything else that you got maybe coming up in the future, of course, with the, with the series. Sure. Um, I, I have a website, which is www.cetobisman.com, and uh, I'm on Twitter, cetobisman underscore. Um, and on both places, I, I'll, I post whatever uh, book signings and other appearances I have coming up. Uh, I just went to the uh, to a writing conference back in New York, which was just terrific for meeting a bunch of other writers and a bunch of thriller and mystery readers. So I try to stay engaged in the community, and I try to keep those sites up, to, but my site up to date and to tweet out anything that's coming up. So I appreciate the opportunity to let people know. And it's T-O-B-I-S-M-A-N, so C-E-T-O-B-I-S-M-A-N. And that's how you spell right. it for people just to make sure, you know, because I can't spell. And so if I don't read it out, other people might not be able to find sure, it. Sure, so, sure. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll do it like I do when I order Chinese food. It's T as in Tom, exactly. O, B as in boy, I, S as in Sam, M, A, N. <laughs> right. And it was funny because I was talking the other day with somebody and I was talking about Chinese food. And I said, I'm sorry, but that's just some a part of food that you cannot gourmet. I mean, orange chicken is orange chicken, man. Okay. I mean, mugu gai pan is mugu gai pan. Um, and they kind of got into it, you know, and they were like, no, do you know, no, you can do this and this. And this. I'm like, dude, it's still the same. You, you can say whatever it's you want, but just because you slap a $20 <laughs> price tag on it doesn't mean it's any better than, than the shit I get from Panda. Um, so I, it was, I, I don't know why I went off on that tangent, but and it was just kind of a funny thing where, you know, what do they call food in China? Or it's just food. You know, it's, they don't call it Chinese food. It's <laughs> just, just food. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just food. Just give me some food. But, hey, see, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's great. Um, talk a little L.A. here. And, you know, because we're up in Ventura County, uh, offices in Calabasas, and, you know, I live in Thousand Oaks. So um, going to the Dodger game today, matter of fact. So that will be very it's interesting. It's going to be a burn burn. Be fun and exciting. It's going to be a little warm, but – it's not going to be too bad. Game starts at 6. I like to sit up top on the third base side. If people go to Dodger Stadium and you go on a Sunday afternoon, make sure you sit in third base side and sit in the upper deck. You will be in the shade, and you're not going to be 95 degrees and burn, especially when we get this heat wave coming this week. Uh, that's all we needed, and it's like, you know. But we've had a pretty good summer. Can't complain. Can't yep. complain. Yep, and we've got a pretty good team. Yeah, we have a yeah. – so far, they're doing pretty good. I'm, you know, but I'm one of those Dodger fans that's been 29 years. I won't believe it until I see it. Regular season is all wonderful and whatnot, but we can talk about the Mariners who won 116 games, never even made the World Series. So mm. I'm going to have to wait until we get everybody back and healthy, and then we'll see what happens. But, yeah, it's fun time right now. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been great to speak with you and wish you nothing but the best and talk to you in the future. Sure. Have a great time. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author C.E. Tobisman. Make sure you go to C.E. Tobisman, T-O-B-I-S-M-A-N.com for more information on everything that she has going on, especially the comics. And, of course, uh, don't forget the latest book out called Proof. It is the second book in the series, To Doubt. So check that out. We want to thank...
uh, John Connolly. We want to thank Jonathan Putman, and we want to thank J.L. Duchette for also being on the show today. It's been great to speak with all of you. Again, subscribe to us on iTunes. If you haven't uh, missed a show, you won't miss anything. And check out the other shows, Beyond the Cover and the Story Blender. Um, we have a lot of stuff going on, and we're going to have a new show, I think, coming up in 2018. So any author who is looking to maybe find an agent or a publisher and you want to pitch, this is going to be the show for you. So check that out, and we'll see if we can get this going. So until next time, everybody, keep reading. Have a great day. Bye-bye.